Um, this morning, uh, we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke. And if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to open up to Luke chapter 6. If you don't, we'll be sharing the passage up on the screen in just a moment. But I just kind of want us to take a moment and think about uh, what it means to be an influencer. Uh, today, right, in our culture, this has become kind of the, the new hot topic. Uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we talked about leadership, and we, everybody wants to be leaders. And then all of a sudden now, it's everybody wants to be influencers. And influencers carries with it a lot of... Uh, of baggage. Uh, that's the only way I could put it. And as I'm thinking about today, I'll be honest with you and say that my heart was really burdened as uh, I worked on this message this week, uh, thinking about those individuals that influence us and influence our culture. We can find that all over social media, can't we? That terminology today. Uh, it, it's, it's shocking to me how much people make being influencers just for having people watch their lives. I was watching a, an interview from Harvard Business School, and they were uh, interviewing, or they were, had a class for uh, MBA students, and they were uh, working their master business, and they were uh, in this class with this professor. And the, the guest that the professor decided to, to bring in was Kim Kardashian. And, um, and they began to just ask questions of Kim Kardashian. And for me, it was somewhat fascinating in that that is what we bring into uh, our studies and graduate level studies is to, to learn. And it's not to say that she's not a brilliant businesswoman. That's not at all. But what was stunning to me was the number of people and the, the kind of building up of this persona and this personality. And as they were talking, they began sharing about how grateful she was not for her business work but for her impact and influence on culture. And it disturbed me because as I got to thinking about it, what is that impact and influence in culture? For much of it, it actually, well, the businesses sit in the back side of that. The front line of that is an emphasis on vanity, an emphasis on materialism, an emphasis on all things that seem to bring great pleasure and yet, we have a culture that follows individuals like this all the time. For the first time in our lives, we hear people saying, what do you want to grow up to be? And they go up, I, I want to be an influencer. And what they're not talking about is an influencer as it relates to influencing people necessarily towards Jesus. They're talking about a career in which people focus on their lives as the center of their world where they want to be followed and seen and known. And so the issue is not so much about influencing others towards something directive and positive, but it is about influencing others towards themselves. Well, this morning, we're going to look at what it really means to be a follower. What it really means to be a blessed follower. Jesus appoints his apostles and then gives us a picture immediately of what the blessed life is supposed to look like. So let's go ahead and stand together as we look at Luke chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 12 and we're going to go through verse 26. And this is what it says. It says, In these days we went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. 
And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Lord God, may we be a blessed people. And may that be our desire this morning, to be followers of you, living, God, the blessed life. The blessed life, God, with a a focus on your kingdom. Father, may the, the life and the pleasures of the world May they taste bitter. But God, may you taste joyous to us. May we be full and rich in you. And may we be satisfied in you this morning. Take your word, God, and plant it on our heart. Move me aside, Father. And may it be your word who comes through with power today in your spirit. And Father, may we be renewed, may we be convicted, may we be encouraged, may we be corrected, and ultimately, God, may we be blessed in you this morning. And we ask this in your name, amen. Simply put, blessed are those who follow Jesus with a kingdom-minded focus. Blessed are those who follow Jesus with a kingdom-minded focus. Blessed is kingdom-minded. Blessed comes from Christ as we seek His kingdom first. Now Jesus had just left the synagogue and the Sabbath where He was healed or He had been healing the those that were around. And on that Sabbath that we saw most recently, he healed the man with a withered hand. And rather than responding with awe and belief in him, that he was God's promised Messiah, the Pharisees are enraged and begin to plot against him. We're told at the end of of verse 11 that they were seeking what to do with him, that they were furious at Jesus, and we know from the other gospel accounts that it was this miracle that then sets them off, moving towards the day where they would find him and bring him ultimately, quote-unquote, to what they thought was his destruction. Well, verse 12 and 16 says that in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, notice that this picking of the disciples or the apostles was not lackadaisical. The apostles were part of the foundation on which Jesus establishes his church, And so Jesus goes out in prayer. Ephesians 2, 18 through 22 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, that is through Jesus. So then you who you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is Jesus, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This was not a lackadaisical 
decision. This wasn't going out and picking teams, right, on the playground. Jesus didn't go out and just say, I want you and you and you and you and you. Jesus actually seeks the Father as to how, who and how to pick. And he doesn't do it in 15 minutes and leave it and go, you know what, I'm done. I'll just go ahead and move on. We're told that he went out to pray and he prayed all night long. Think about that. If Jesus finds prayer that important, then we should too. So many of our own decisions are based upon feeling, are they not? What we, we feel is right in the moment. One of the things that I've shared is that in ministry and in Christ's church, all of our decisions should be preceded by prayer. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't make simple decisions in, in quickly and we, we know what was there, but we need to have a culture of prayer around decisions that affect Christ's church. Our call is not swiftness. Our call is prayerfulness. Our call is to be a prayerful people. And so sometimes that means that we can move quickly, and sometimes that means that we have to move slower. But Jesus here goes in prayer before the Lord. He doesn't just walk over and appoint 12 apostles. Rather, he sits before the Lord before making this decision. He sits before the Father before making this decision. Verse 13 tells us that he called his disciples and chose them in 12 whom he named apostles. Now, what does he mean by that? The disciples that are being spoken of here are those that are following Jesus, which is actually a large crowd. He takes from amongst that large crowd and he appoints 12 apostles. Now, a disciple is one who follows or a follower. An apostle, actually that word is referring to a special envoy or a special messenger or an ambassador. That's what an apostle is. They carried a special message. They were ambassadors for Jesus. And the apostles are those that we, we actually get the opportunity to model our lives behind. Behind Jesus as we watch them be trained up by Jesus as they follow Jesus. In fact, Paul tells us, follow my example. Paul was an influencer. And every day, rather than going to Instagram or Facebook, we have God's Word that's full of influencers. And God's desire is that we would follow the influencers that He's appointed, not that man's appointed. You see, Jesus selects ordinary people to be His apostles. Notice there's fishermen in this group. We see here Simon, that is Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John. There's brothers, Peter and Andrew, and James and John. There's cousins amongst this group. There's a tax collector, one who is outcast by society. Not even allowed in the synagogue. There's a zealot. One who had confused his own faith with the politics of the day. He would kill for his faith or his politics. Again, fervency overtaken. And a traitor. One that would come to betray Jesus was amongst this group that was appointed as apostles. And we're told in Acts 4.13, the reason for appointing ordinary people. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that he, they had been with Jesus. 
When you come to Jesus, Jesus is not looking at your earthly abilities. I remember years ago working with someone and we were talking through some things and the only way I could describe him is he was always cantankerous. He was always quarrelsome. And it didn't matter what kind of meeting we had as a church, he always argued with everything. And so I remember that for me, one of the things is, I like people asking questions. It's an encouragement to me. But I pulled him aside and I shared with him, I said, can we meet for lunch? I said, I just, I just want to understand why it is that each meeting, every time we meet, it's an argument. And I remember him sharing as we were talking through this and as we were chatting and I said to him, I, I said, I feel like actually there's actually just a pride issue here that it feels like you kind of come in and your thought is, I know more than everyone else. And because of that, you don't really receive anything from anyone else. And his words back to me were, well, I, I'm going to have to think about that to see if that's true. He said, I don't think it's actually pride, but I, I will take a look. And it was grateful. I, I knew him. I knew he loved Jesus. I knew that he was a person that I could go to and talk to. But we all have blind spots, right? Every one of us has blind spots. So we got together again. And so we sat and still remember where we were at. And we sat together and I said, so did the Lord reveal anything to you? And he looked at me and he said, yeah. You know, God has always put me in leadership positions, and I've always kind of been smarter than other people, and I'm really, really good with numbers. And so, yeah, I think that's why I am, because I'm here to correct. And I smiled at him, and I said, do you think that's pride? And he said, well, if it's true, it doesn't make it pride. And so I said, well, you probably ought to spend a little more time thinking about that. <laughs> and we actually had a good relationship and a good friendship and good conversation. And over time, God did soften his heart to those things. But it's easy for us to believe that we bring something to the table, that our usefulness is based upon the ability that God has given us in this world. Now, our usefulness matters as God gifts us and God wants us to serve in areas of our gifting. But we need to not equate that with that God needs our gifting. God has granted his gifting to us and we're to use that with humility, not in pride. Philip Graham Ryken observes, all through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. What God desires for us is dependence upon him. That's when we become useful to him. See, Jesus doesn't just immediately send them out, but he begins the process of training them up and making them to his disciples. And we see this in verse 17 where he says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Jesus doesn't stop with them in a moment. He doesn't appoint with them and then leave them behind. He immediately engages them in the ministry that he's doing. Now, there are some that believe that this particular message, this particular part of, of Luke actually differs from Matthew because we're told in Matthew 5 that Jesus went up the mount and he gave this what is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And it seems to contradict this because he came down into a level place. The better way to put that is he came down into a plateau. It's, I don't believe that it is a different story. I believe that the, the order of the passage is the same story. It doesn't really matter. Jesus spoke the same truth. But I believe that Luke is sharing this account 
And this account is important that as they come down, Jesus immediately moves them from appointment into service. Matthew Henry points out, in serving God, our great care should be not to lose time, but to make the end of one good duty the beginning of another. I think sometimes we can feel like we've served the Lord and just go, "Ah, yeah, I'm out now, Lord. When in fact, what the Lord wants and desires from us is that, as we saw last week, that our rest is in Him. It doesn't mean that we burn ourselves out. It does mean, though, that we don't see our service in boxes like events. We see our service to the Lord in terms of faithfulness, endurance, perseverance, and joy. Not that we have to, but that we get to. And so Jesus takes the disciples or the apostles with him, and he begins to train them up. And really what he's doing is he's carrying out this discipleship process with them. And so what we see here are two truths about discipleship, which is the ministry of Christ-likeness. This is how we become like Christ. Now, we submit our lives to Jesus, but Jesus is showing these followers, these apostles, these special messengers, what his desire is for them. He's training them up. And it's a model not only for us as we train up others, but it's a model for us being trained up as well. And the first thing that we see here is that communing with Jesus allows us to witness his truth and power. Communing with Jesus allows us to witness his truth and power. It says that when they came down, that there were those who were troubled with unclean spirits and they were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. If you want to experience the power of Jesus, you've got to commune with Jesus. The ministry of Christ-likeness begins as we commune with Christ. We can say all day that we want to be like Jesus, but if we don't know Christ, it's going to be difficult to be like Christ. If we're not seeking Him and seeking relationship with Him, we're not going to experience His power and His truth. You ever go through Scripture and you wonder what it means and then you walk and you're living out the day and all of a sudden... God does something where you just go, oh, okay, that brings a new understanding. Ever seen where God has brought joy in the midst of affliction? And you've just gotten done reading passages around affliction? Ever seen God provide for you financially when you didn't think there was any hope? when you thought that there was no way that he would meet you where you were at. But his promises and his words are faithful and true. You see, we experience that as we commune with God. God's doing things in our lives every single day. And in part, I think we miss it because we're not communing with him as faithfully as we ought. Discipleship begins with our communion with Him. It also means that when God has called us to disciple others, it means that we are present with others. This life in Christ is not meant to be done alone. It's why the disciples were sent out in twos. We're meant to be in fellowship with one another. We will always feel disconnected from the body of Christ if we are not in fellowship with other believers. And we will grow stagnant because we need others who speak into our life, who speak the truth in love, and we need the opportunity to discern and to speak into other people's lives. 
James 4, 6 through 10 says, But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What does he call us to do? He calls us to draw near to him. Part of communing with God. The second truth about discipleship, the ministry of Christ-likeness, the first, communing with Jesus allows us to witness his truth and power. The second is that the blessed life finds dependence and joy in Jesus rather than in the world. We have things bombarding us all the time, telling us what the blessed life is. Very seldom is it this. The blessed life finds dependence and joy in Jesus rather than in the world. The blessed life is not me finding independent financial wealth in myself. The blessed life is not having the American dream. It's not saying that those things by themselves are bad. It is saying that when I consider that to be the blessed life, I've missed it. The blessed life is finding dependence and joy in him, being hopelessly and relentlessly abandoned to him, meaning that apart from him, I have no hope. And apart from him, life is unrelenting. The blessed life is dependency upon Jesus. You ever met somebody that's in the midst of such turmoil, and yet they have such joy and hope in Jesus? That's blessing. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, hungry now, weep now, when people hate, exclude, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. But woe to you who are rich, full now, laugh now, and when all people speak well of you, Wow, this is different than our culture, isn't it? The blessed life, what does it mean? How many of us actually take our sufferings as blessings? How many of us see the suffering that we experience in life as a blessing? Jesus says it throughout the scripture that suffering for his sake, suffering in his power... Suffering even for our sake, meaning his sanctification upon our life, is a blessing. But seldom do we walk up and do we look at a person who's suffering hard and go, Ooh, man, they sure are blessed. Right? I know for me, that's not always run through my mind. Right? I'm like, Lord, why? Like right now? Poor timing, God. Right? You're missing this one. I'd do okay with this if you give it maybe in six months, but right now, I'm not going to do well, right? Instead of going, man, God, what a blessing. In you, I can get through anything. In you, I can be sustained through anything. In you, I can have joy in the midst of anything. And thank you, Lord, that you have opened my eyes to your truth. Because apart from you, I would be hopeless. And I would be despairing. The blessed life finds dependence and joy in Jesus rather than in the world. One of the greatest issues that we have today is a lack of contentment and joy in our culture. We live our lives in comparison. Now, the message this morning is not to slap social media. I think there are some good benefits of it. But the downside is, is that we have line sight into people's lives that we should never have. And what has happened has been comparison, has been a breeding of discontentment. 
Why is it that somebody else has that or is able to do that? We seek to find contentment in the things that we do and the things that we have and the things that we are rather than in Jesus. You ever heard this term, forever home? i got to be honest with you, as Christians, we got to slap that down. Our forever home is in heaven. Our forever home is not here. And so we don't look forever homes. Why? Because at any moment, God can call us someplace else. Are our feet rooted here or are they rooted in Christ? You see, Jesus' kingdom is different. It's an upside-down kingdom. I'll encourage you that there's an old song by an old Christian artist. His name was Morgan Cryer. He wrote a song called Kingdom Upside Down. The reason I mention that is it was the song that changed my life. As a teenager, I heard that song, and it was years, a couple years before I gave my life to Jesus, but it was that moment when I can still remember where I was sitting when I heard that song, listened to that song being played, and I thought, I want more. I want more in Christ than what I have now. Now, that's been 40 years And I still remember where I was sitting when I heard that song. That God's kingdom is not the kingdom of earth. God's kingdom is rooted and secured in Jesus. You see, the blessed life is not finding the great pleasures of this life, but the blessed life is finding the great joy of being in Christ. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the pleasures that God gives us. It does mean that when those pleasures outweigh the contentment that we find in Jesus, and when we seek those pleasures at the expense of Jesus, we've missed what God is calling us to. We've missed the blessing that He's leading us into. You see, it says, Blessed are you. Not blessed will you be or blessed shall you be. Blessed are you. Your blessing is present tense in Jesus. So four questions then to help us assess who we're actually following. I would encourage you to work through these today, sit on them a little bit, think on them this week. Ask people who know you, maybe your spouse, Maybe a friend, others. But ask yourselves these questions. Because Jesus lifts his eyes towards the disciples, looking at them, and he begins this comparison of blessed statements versus woe statements. And he says in verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Are you seeking the encouragement and riches of Jesus' kingdom or the world? What are you seeking? Are you seeking the encouragement and riches of Jesus' kingdom or the world? God has called the body of Christ to meet together, to gather together. And he says, do not neglect doing so. Our culture today has created two gods on Sundays to compete with that. Sports, and then media sports. You guys know I love sports. But we see what's happening today. Now, there are other things competing for that attention as well. Lots of things. I keep my Saturdays busy, so my Sundays become more full. I don't do what I ought to do on Saturday. And so I miss the gathering because I have more stuff to do at home on Sundays. That's an example of this. You're chasing the riches, finding encouragement in the riches of the world rather than prioritizing back to what God has for us. Is my house or my car more important 
than what God is calling me to do and to be? How do I arrange my time? How do I use my resources? When I give, is it, eh, man, I have to. Or is it, God, thank you. I'm so blessed that I get to. You see, we need to honestly ask, are we seeking the encouragement and riches of Jesus' kingdom? Are we seeking his kingdom first, or are we putting our kingdom first, the world's kingdom first? Another way to put it is, whose approval are you seeking, Jesus or the world? Proverbs 30, verse 8 through 9 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, do we depend on Jesus? Are we seeking his kingdom? Are we satisfied in his kingdom? This idea that you've already received your consolation, when you make this kingdom your priority, God is saying you are missing the reward that he has for you eternally. And you're missing the reward and joy that he has for you now. You've already received your consolation. You know what he's saying? The best that is here. Well, you're getting it. But it is the worst that you will have eternity. Remember, that in Christ, our best life is not here. Our best life will be in his presence. And sometimes each of us gets stuck in that place of thinking that this is what ought to have our priority and our attention. When in fact, we ought to live not with an earthly kingdom mindset, but with a heavenly kingdom mindset. The second question is, are you hungering for more of Jesus or more of the world? What are you desiring for? Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Are you content? Are you finding your contentment in Jesus? Or are you seeking contentment in this world? Do you find that you're constantly restless? Always looking for the next thing. Always feeling like the grass is greener someplace else or somewhere else. Or in something else. You see, hunger is actually a sign of health. Sick people lose their appetite. But what you hunger for will show whether you're healthy or sick. Are you hungering for more of Jesus or more of the world? Are you looking to be more like someone else and have what somebody else has? Or are you looking to be like Christ and have what he has? You see, in Matthew, when Jesus goes through the Beatitudes here, he does so focusing on the, the Spirit but in Luke, he actually focuses on the physical. And it makes sense, right, that throughout the underlying tone of Luke is this idea that Jesus is the Son of Man, the promised Messiah, that He is our Savior, one who can take the rightful penalty of our sin, put it to death on the cross, and life can be found in Him. He uses that hunger to show us what's going on inside of us. Are we hungering for Jesus or are we hungering for the world? If our hunger is for the world, we may be full now. That may look good. It is why he says that it's easier for a rich man to what? Go through 
excuse me, it's harder for a rich man to go through the, the eye of a needle than it is for a camel, right? Because our comfort compels us to feel like everything's all right. And our comfort compels us to feel like it's enough. Who are you hungering more for, Jesus or the world? The third question, are you weeping over your sin or apathetic and happy to remain in your sin? Are you weeping over your sin or apathetic and happy to remain in your sin? Blessed are you who weep down, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh, laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. There is a consequence for not dealing with our sin. How do you look at sin in your life? Do you allow people to speak freely into your life? Do you allow people to confront you regarding your life or your sin? Or do you just push it away? Pride does a couple things for us. When people come to us and they, they look and desire to speak truth into our life, there's a couple things that happen. Where should our heart be in response? It should be one of humility, one of posture, one of pause. But where do we often go? Defensiveness. But if we want to be Christ-like, we need people who speak into our life. We need God's Word to do it, we need the Spirit to do it, and we need His church to do it. And sometimes what will happen is we'll deflect that. What are some of the common ways of deflecting that? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Well, we're going to be talking about judgment in a few weeks because the next part of this sermon deals with it. But remember that Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 5, you judge those within the church, I'll judge those outside of the church. Now, he doesn't mean to carry a judgmental attitude. He does mean that we are called to address sin in one another's lives. And so if you hear those words, don't judge me, come out of your mouth, check yourself. Every one of us. Check ourselves. It should cause us to pause. There's a difference between judgmentalism and loving judgment that is dealing with active sin. See, past sin we deal with, we put down, we shouldn't be embarrassed of because God has already put it under His blood. Present sin should be addressed in our lives. It should cause us to stop. It should cause us to take note. We should not be happy in our present sin. But if we find that we are apathetic in our sin or happy to remain in it, meaning we're not taking it seriously, this is what Jesus is talking about. Weep about your sin now so that when you stand before the Lord, the reward of walking in His righteousness will be great. Don't wait. Don't stand back and say, you know what, I'm just happy to remain where I'm at. If you desire to follow Jesus, don't be apathetic and happy in your sin but weep over it. Ask God to give you a godly grief, as 2 Corinthians 7 says, that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. That's how we're to address our sin. With seriousness, we don't remain in it, just hoping that somehow it'll all change. We walk in submission to Jesus. We confess it, put it before Him. We weep over that sin and then receive His mercy and walk in freedom over that sin. Finally, Verse 22 through 23 and verse 26 says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so the fathers did to the prophets. 
But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Are you willing to be exposed and to sacrifice your reputation with others for Jesus' sake or desiring for others' acceptance? Are you willing to be exposed and sacrifice your reputation with others for Jesus' sake or are you desiring for others' acceptance? We've been talking about this call that God has given to us to be witnesses, to be catchers of men. I want to encourage you to continue to be praying for a person in your sphere of influence who doesn't know Christ. I want to encourage you to be here next week when Dave Gudgel is here and he's preaching and he's dealing with storyboarding. And what he's talking about there, so that you know, is that he's actually walking through a process of Luke 24 where Jesus actually takes the men on the road to Emmaus and he reminds them of the Old Testament and how he is the fulfillment of the the Old Testament. And I think you'll be really strengthened in your own understanding of Scripture, but I think you'll also be empowered in sharing the gospel, seeing how the entire redemptive story works together. We need to be a people who are committed as Christ's followers to be hated for our views, to be reviled for our views, to be excluded for our views, and even treated badly and poorly and spurned, and even suffering physical affliction for the name of Jesus. That's his call. His call is not acceptance by the world. His call is to surrender to him. His call is sacrifice See, are you really willing to be exposed? What if somebody knew every dark secret of your life? Everything. Are you willing to use it for his sake? Are you willing to be exposed for the kingdom of God so that others might grow in Christ? And if somebody were to expose the dark secrets that have been put under the blood of Jesus, would you stand before them in shame or would you stand before them in victory, saying, yeah, that is who I was. And so was Paul, and so was Peter, and so am I. One who is stained by sin, but washed clean by the blood of Jesus. That's what it means to be exposed. There is supposed to be no power over our past sin. Jesus is no longer ashamed of it. He actually bore our shame. Therefore, when we remain ashamed in it and embarrassed of it, we only empower the enemy to keep us in bondage. We need to be a people in Christ's likeness who are willing to lay it all out there if needed. And if it is exposed, to not flee, but to engage, trusting that it's not the acceptance of man that I am desiring and seeking, but it is Christ. Revelation 13, 9 and 10 says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. And then listen to these last little words, which I love. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What an awesome call. He doesn't say run from it. He doesn't say flee from it. He doesn't say get away from it. And if you're being suffering, that you're doing something wrong, he says what? Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Endure. This is what you have been called to do. Endure. Isaiah 66.5 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for My name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. 
the sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Jesus is our vindicator, not man. And we rest in his acceptance, that he has accepted us through his blood, then we don't have to fear men. And we don't have to fear the consequences that come when people reject us because they do not reject us, but they reject the gospel. Now with that being said, that means that as we deal with the lost, we should never be the source of that rejection. What do I mean by that? We are to deal with one another in love. We're to deal with them in love. The gospel is to be the offense, not us. And so if they are offended of us because of the gospel, then so be it. But our actions towards them should never be the offense. Our call is to respond to them in the loving mercy in the way that Jesus responds to us with loving mercy. And so may it be this morning that we are blessed disciples, that we choose to live a life of discipleship, communing with God and knowing that the blessed life is found in dependence and joy on Him, not in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for the blessing and showing us, God, what the blessed life is. Thank You, God, for giving us a kingdom that is not of this earth, but is of Your perfection with You. Thank You for giving us the, Your Spirit so that we might live, God, in this earth in this kingdom, but with your hope and with your joy and with your purpose. God, may we not waver, but may we stand firm in the ministry of Christ-likeness. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.